Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast titled Access Block, where we are drawing on the content from the June 2021 print edition of the Clinical Communique. I'm Dr. Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. In this podcast episode, we will hear about patient deaths where the issue of access block and ED overcrowding was an important consideration in each case. The coroners looked at the context within which the tragic chain of events occurred and the impact that access block had on the care that was given. To quote one of the coroners, access block and ED overcrowding pose a danger to the lives of people who attend the emergency department. As an emergency physician, access block is a reality and a risk to patient safety that I face every time I go to work. But it is a risk and a reality that is not just limited to the emergency department. Access block affects our inpatient teams, our medical and surgical colleagues who are trying to admit patients under their care. It often prevents them from being able to bring those patients into the hospital. And for those patients who get to the emergency department and are admitted, access block quite frequently prevents them from being cared for on the specialty wards where the most appropriately skilled staff to care for their illnesses are located. Access block affects pre-hospital care as well. It creates a backlog that makes it incredibly difficult for our colleagues in the community, GPs, paramedics, outreach nurses, from being able to get their patients into hospital. This is what the cases in the expert commentary in this episode demonstrate. Access block is a very serious problem that involves us all. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate the editorial. This podcast is based on the June 2021 edition of the Clinical Communique. In this podcast episode, we look at the problem of access block major barrier to delivering safe and timely care to patients in hospitals. We present four cases that demonstrate how the negative consequences of access block are far-reaching and affect every stage of a patient's journey through the healthcare system. Our expert commentary is about the lessons learned from the cases in this episode and looks at the role every clinician can play in addressing such a systemic and pervasive and preventable problem. 
The contents of this podcast include an editorial, case number one, alone in a crowded space, case number two, the long wait, more on the matter, the knock-on effects, and expert commentary, a system under pressure. Editorial from Dr. Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to episode six of the Clinical Communique podcast, based on the June 2021 edition of the Clinical Communique. In this podcast episode, we address access block, the single most serious issue facing emergency departments and the major contributor to emergency department overcrowding. Research has shown that new patients presenting to an access blocked emergency department have a 10% greater chance of dying within seven days of admission. Just as the extent of the problem stretches through the whole of the patient's journey from pre-hospital to discharge, solutions are only to be found by viewing the whole system rather than just the emergency department. Access block refers to the situation where patients in the emergency department requiring inpatient care are unable to gain access to appropriate hospital beds within a reasonable time frame. It is expressed as the proportion of patients requiring formal admission to hospital who have a total emergency department time greater than eight hours. The term was first coined more than two decades ago and defined in a standard terminology policy by the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine in 2002. Since that time, there have been innumerable publications, media articles and individual anecdotes drawing attention to the immense struggles hospitals and the systems that feed into them are facing as a result of access block. Almost 20 years later, it remains a tenacious barrier to patient safety within hospitals. Although access block is a measurable parameter with an emergency department-specific focus, it is by no means an emergency department-specific problem. Access block is a system issue that represents failures in resourcing and processes at every level of healthcare. It requires leadership and commitment from the government, community healthcare services, emergency and inpatient services, and hospital management to drive the changes that are desperately needed. A troubling side effect of the enduring presence of access block is the normalization of this state among staff with a subsequent reduction in risk analysis capabilities, both for staff within the emergency department and for those to whom escalations and alerts are directed. When presented with an objectively dysfunctional state, such as an emergency department with 80% of cubicles occupied by admitted patients and nowhere to see new patients, staff may assess this as better than yesterday, thus minimizing the safety hazards that exist. This normalization process may be deepened or reframed as fatalism or apathy if departmental trigger alerts are not consistently activated due to a learned experience of non-action in response to previous escalations. For hospital managers receiving these alerts, alarm fatigue can result in a lack of urgency for a problem that is interminable. Gone are the days when an emergency department at capacity was viewed as an exceptional circumstance, triggering an internal hospital disaster alert. Working within an access block system has become a daily reality for many emergency department and hospital staff, accompanied by a collective sense of wearied resignation. 
Access block has become an observance that many have ceased to observe. The healthcare system enters dangerous territory when daily access block is accepted as the new norm. We should not be acquiescing to a systemic state that is demonstrably fraught with risk for patients. Access block is not simply a numerical entity of numbers of hours admitted patients spend in the emergency department. It has become a pervasive driver of skewed behaviour at many different points of a patient's journey. From influencing decisions to transport a patient to hospital, to being the underlying reason as to why a patient did not wait to be seen, to altering the care delivered to a patient in an emergency department waiting room or cubicle, access block creates a cascade effect that has far-reaching detrimental outcomes on the health of patients, as illustrated by the cases in this episode. In the most powerful statement on access block yet, by the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. Dr. Simon Judkins, the immediate past president, Dr. John Bonning, the sitting president, and Dr. Claire Skinner, the president-elect, co-authored an article in the Medical Journal of Australia calling for the whole system to reform. They highlight that poor access to care threatens the health and safety of patients and clinicians and they ask that our governments and colleagues in emergency medicine and other specialties collaborate to improve care. In this episode, we have a compelling expert commentary by Dr Judkins that looks at what clinicians can do as individuals to make a difference, even when the system failures around us seem insurmountable. Access block is a patient safety issue that is occurring every day in every emergency department across the country. It is not a potential medical error that we read about and endeavour to learn from to prevent harm if we ever found ourselves in a similar scenario. It is a clear and present danger to our patients, massive, pervasive and fundamentally preventable. That makes it one of the most pressing patient safety issues that we face in our lifetime. I implore all clinicians to listen to this podcast episode, reflect on the cases and commentary you hear, and strive to become part of the solution. Let's now listen to the case from Tasmania. Case number one, Alone in a Crowded Space, from Case Pracy author, Dr. Suzanne Doherty, Emergency Physician. Clinical Summary. Mr. J.L. was a 37-year-old man who presented to the emergency department of a tertiary health service with suicidal thoughts. He recognised that he was at high risk of self-harm and called an ambulance for himself, asking to be brought to the hospital for assistance. He had a history of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, cognitive deficits secondary to multiple head injuries, alcohol excess, and previous methamphetamine use. In the weeks before his hospital presentation, Mr. J.L. had been actively engaged with his mental health supports and was not deemed to be at a higher risk of suicide than usual. When the paramedics arrived, Mr. J.L. was receptive to their care and interacted with them on the way to the hospital. He disclosed that he had a suicidal plan of hanging or using a knife to harm himself. 
the paramedic spoke to Mr. JL about his interest in yachts and his child, as these were identified by Mr. JL as the things that helped protect him from self-harm. On arrival at the emergency department, Mr. JL was initially hesitant to enter due to his anxiety associated with hospitals. With some reassurance, he entered and sat in the waiting room area nearest to the door and triage station. After speaking to the triage nurse and communicating to her that Mr. JL was a voluntary and extremely compliant patient, the paramedics left. Mr. JL was triaged as a category three patient which indicated that he should receive treatment within 30 minutes. There were no free beds in the emergency department to move Mr. JL into, so he was advised to remain in the waiting room until a space became available. There were no staff members available to accompany him, so the triage nurse made as many regular assessments as possible of him that she could, whilst performing her triage duties. 42 minutes after he was triaged, Mr. JL entered the public toilets in the emergency department. Shortly afterwards, the triage nurse noted that he was no longer in the waiting room. Mr. JL was found hanging, lifeless and cyanosed in the toilet cubicle. Mr. JL was extricated from the cubicle and found to be in cardiac arrest. After a prolonged resuscitation, he was transferred to the intensive care unit. Investigations showed that he had suffered extensive neurological injury and a further treatment was considered futile. After discussions between the treating doctors and Mr. JL's family, life support treatment was withdrawn. Pathology. The cause of death was hypoxic encephalopathy caused by his attempt at suicide by hanging. Investigation. A coronial investigation and inquest followed. The aim was to determine the circumstances leading to Mr. JL's death and to make recommendations to prevent further deaths. Issues with Mr. JL's management in the emergency department were examined with a focus on the possible contribution to his death of resource limitations such as staffing and available treatment space. At the time of Mr. JL's presentation to the hospital, the emergency department was experiencing heavy access block with 14 admitted patients occupying beds. Consequently, there were no appropriate spaces to assess Mr. JL, nor to commence treatment and closely monitor him. It also resulted in a lack of support, comfort, and privacy being afforded to him. It was submitted by counsel for the health service that the lack of timely support, assessment, treatment, and bed space could not be found to be contributing factors in Mr. JL's decision to end his life and that his suicide attempt was unexpected. The coroner disagreed with this suggestion noting that according to the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine's Australasian Triage Scale, Mr. JL's requirements at that time included the need for continuous support by an appropriate person, a suitable treatment space to begin care, and the offer of medication. 
It was also noted that assessment and treatment in a timely manner, consistent with his triage category, was indicated. In not meeting these needs, the coroner reported, Predictably, JL's distress and anxiety increased considerably in the environment in which he waited without support. He then took the very action that he wished to prevent by seeking treatment at the emergency department. Medical staff at the hospital testified that since the death of Mr. JL, access block had worsened. The number of presentations to the emergency department had increased and the complexity of these cases had heightened. Ambulance ramping had also worsened because of access block and rather than utilise the waiting room, paramedics were expected to remain ramped with mental health patients until a nurse and appropriate clinical space was made available. This removed significant numbers of ambulances from other tasks for extended periods of time. There had been some attempts to address the access block, but they had been under-resourced and the necessary culture change throughout the hospital had not occurred. The coroner heard about a planned redevelopment of the hospital that would include a redesign of the emergency department to address the enormous demand on its service. Details of a government reform of mental health services was also discussed at the inquest, which would have an emphasis on reducing mental health presentations to the emergency department by utilising community services. Coroner's findings. The coroner found that Mr JL was appropriately triaged and the triage nurse could not have done any more to assist. However, as a Category 3 patient, Mr JL should have been placed in a safe environment, being seen within 30 minutes and allocated a support person. These deficits in his care were due to insufficient staffing and space and contributed to his death. The coroner made a list of recommendations that included The government partake in a recruitment drive to fill staff vacancies such as psychiatric emergency nurses and support persons. The government progress its mental health service reforms such as the Mental Health Integration Task Force and the Hospital Avoidance Program. A dedicated mental health assessment unit is included in the proposed redesign of the emergency department. Author's comments. Unfortunately, this is a familiar story amongst Australia's emergency departments. In September 2020, across 93 Australian emergency departments, more than two-thirds of current patients awaiting admission were suffering access block, being unable to be moved from the emergency department into hospital beds. Access block does not simply cause delays in assessment and treatment. An estimated 20 to 30% excess mortality rate has been attributable to access block and emergency department overcrowding, which translates into approximately 1,500 deaths per year. This has been on par with corresponding annual road death tolls. Our healthcare system is struggling to cope with the ever-increasing demand. The emergency department is one of the major interfaces where this pressure is felt. Incredibly, Caring for patients who are admitted but are waiting ward transfer makes up one third of the emergency department workload. Emergency departments may appear chaotic, noisy environments, and yes, they certainly can be. It can be a difficult place to work, 
but also incredibly rewarding and satisfying. However, at a time when Access Block is at unprecedented levels across Australia, our work has become perhaps too challenging and frequently unsafe. Let's now listen to the case from Victoria. Case number two. Case title, The Long Wait, from Case Precy author, Dr. Caitlin Lovett, emergency physician and clinical toxicologist. Clinical summary. Mr. MG was a 34-year-old man who was active, fit and healthy. He woke at 6.30 in the morning on his first day of symptoms with no energy, chest pain and feeling generally unwell. At 7.59, he arrived at the emergency department of a metropolitan hospital, having driven himself. This emergency department was one of the busiest in the state. He reported symptoms of chest pain radiating to his jaw to the triage nurse and was designated a triage category 2 patient. The nursing staff commenced a chest pain pathway with an ECG performed at 8.16, clinical observations at 8.25 and blood tests taken at 8.41 that morning. The ECG was shown to the emergency consultant who did not identify any concerning features for acute coronary syndrome. At this point, Mr. MG reported ongoing bilateral chest pain with a score of 4 out of 10 severity. He was given paracetamol and indomethacin as analgesic medication at 9 o'clock and a chest x-ray was ordered for him. As the emergency department was at capacity with 14 patients waiting to be seen and 24 awaiting inpatient beds, he was placed in the waiting room until a cubicle could become available. By 10.39 that morning, Mr. MG was called twice as beds became available, but he had already left the emergency department. He did not have the chest x-ray that had been ordered. Mr. MG arrived home around 11 o'clock, telling his partner that he told the staff he was feeling too unwell to sit in the waiting room and would go home to await the results. There is no documentation of this discussion in the medical notes. Mr. MG represented to the same emergency department at 3.33 that afternoon with ongoing respiratory chest pain and vomiting. The emergency department remained at capacity and no cubicle was available again. There were now 61 patients in the department with 29 waiting to be seen and 17 awaiting ward beds. His chest pain at 4.34 was 2 out of 10 in severity. When the doctor who was to see Mr. MG went to the waiting room at 5.42, Mr. MG had already left. He did not wait to be seen. When he returned home for the second time, he reported to his partner that he was told to rest as he had a chest infection. This advice was also not documented in the hospital medical records. The next day, Mr. MG had ongoing chest pain and a lack of energy. The following morning, while driving, he was seen to break, then collide with a roadside safety barrier. A witness reported finding Mr. MG unresponsive and slumped in his seat. Bystander cardiopulmonary resuscitation was commenced and then continued by paramedics. Resuscitation attempts were unsuccessful and Mr. MG was declared dead at the scene. Pathology. An autopsy was conducted finding hemopericardium and a dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm as the cause of death. 
there was no significant atherosclerosis, but Mr. MG did have a bicuspid aortic valve. This variant is known to increase the risk of aortic aneurysm. The forensic pathologist did note that given his young age, genetic conditions leading to aortic aneurysms should be considered. Investigation. Mr. MG's death was reported to the coroner as it was unexpected and appeared to have occurred as a result of an accident or injury. The coroner noted the autopsy findings and accepted that death was a result of natural causes. Mr. MG's family raised concerns about the medical care he received, so the focus of the coronial investigation turned to the medical care provided by the Metropolitan Hospital Emergency Department in the days leading up to his death. The medical records of Mr. MG's two presentations were reviewed, along with a statement from the director of the emergency department. The Australasian College for Emergency Medicine's position statement in relation to access block was taken into consideration as part of the investigation. The coroner heard that after their own mortality and morbidity review of Mr. MG's death, the emergency department had implemented the following. One, formulation of senior nursing staff follow-up by phone of all patients from triage categories one to three that leave without being seen by a doctor. Number two, change in the emergency model of care, allowing clear escalation of concerns, including the in-charge consultant being informed of all triage category two patients that leave without being seen by a doctor. And number three, a continuing whole of hospital approach to improving patient flow. The coroner's prevention unit advised the coroner that, one, Access block has a direct negative effect on the ability of the Australian emergency departments to provide quality, timely and safe medical care. It was described as the single most serious issue affecting emergency departments. Two, it was not possible to say whether being seen by a doctor on Mr. E.G.'s emergency department presentations would have prevented his death. Aortic dissections can be difficult to diagnose. While it could have been normal if Mr. MG had had the chest X-ray, it is possible the emergency doctors may have seen an abnormality. Three, the triage assessments and initial nurse-led assessment were appropriate, and both times Mr. MG presented to the emergency department, the significant access block meant there was no available cubicles where he could be reviewed by a medical doctor. Four, it is likely that the chest pain Mr. MG presented to the emergency department with was due to his thoracic aortic aneurysm dissection. And five, on the two occasions that Mr. MG attended the emergency department, it was not seen within the stipulated time frame for the specified triage category and the opportunity for him to be medically assessed was unfortunately missed. Coroner's findings. The coroner acknowledged the changes implemented by the emergency department in relation to follow-up for patients who leave without being seen and an escalation process for concerns regarding patient care. The coroner also acknowledged that access block and emergency department overcrowding pose a danger to the lives of people who attend. The coroner was satisfied that no further investigation was required given that Mr. MG had died of natural causes. 
Our next section, more on the matter, is where we highlight two more cases where the issue of access block and ED overcrowding was considered by the coroner during their investigations. More on the matter, the knock-on effects, from Dr Nicola Cunningham, emergency physician and forensic physician, adjunct associate professor, Department of Forensic Medicine, Monash University. Access block and inpatient admissions. Mr. SB was a 62-year-old man with hypertension and hypercholesterolemia who woke feeling agitated and cold. His wife called for an ambulance and when they arrived, Mr. SB was rolling around on the floor, sweaty and breathless with an oxygen saturation level of 90% on room air. At hospital, he was hypertensive and breathless and told staff he thought he was having a panic attack. He denied chest pain or dizziness. He was found to be in atrial fibrillation with a rate of 130 beats per minute and had an otherwise normal ECG. A CT pulmonary angiogram scan did not show any evidence of a pulmonary embolus. His blood tests revealed an elevated troponin level, so he was referred to the cardiology team who admitted him under their care with a diagnosis of non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. He was commenced on aspirin, ticagrelor, an antiplatelet agent, and therapeutic clexane, an anticoagulant. Mr. SB had been in the emergency department for more than six hours and remained there once his admission was completed. Over the ensuing three to four hours, he became increasingly sweaty and breathless with episodes of severe hypertension. He was moved to a resuscitation cubicle for close monitoring. Almost 10 hours after his first arrival at the hospital, he developed neurological signs and a CT scan of his brain showed a large intracerebral haemorrhage with significant mass effect. Following consultation with the neurosurgical team, he was palliated and died the next day. In the coronial investigation into Mr SB's death, the coroner heard that he should have been allocated a monitored cubicle in the emergency department so that his vital signs could be continuously observed. Due to extreme emergency department overcrowding, however, there was no capacity to do so for more than eight hours of his stay. Hourly audits of the department's capacity showed that throughout that period, there was ambulance ramping, no acute cubicles, and access to none or only one resuscitation cubicle for seven of the eight hours. The medical advisor to the coroner noted that, Rather than settle on a decision that Mr. SP's presentation was cardiac, his better management required close monitoring and a fully considered assessment of all the signs and symptoms, including those which contraindicated a myocardial infarction. Such monitoring and assessment were made particularly difficult by the environment existing in the emergency department at that time. The coroner was not critical of the failure to make the diagnosis of intracerebral haemorrhage given the delayed onset of neurological signs, but the misdiagnosis of a myocardial infarction meant that further attention was not given to Mr SB's constellation of symptoms. The misdiagnosis also resulted in the administration of anticoagulation, worsening his underlying condition. 
The coroner concluded that although the overcrowding was not a causative factor in Mr Espy's death, it would have been difficult and stressful for staff in the emergency department, and it did have the prospect of seriously compromising patient safety. Access block and ambulance transfers. Miss Alwai was a 23-year-old woman who developed a stomach ache and profuse vomiting. Her family rang the local hospital for advice and attempted to contact Miss Alwai's general practitioner and a locum service for assistance, but were unable to arrange a clinical review for her. Miss Alwai continued vomiting for several hours, so they called triple zero, but were told that her symptoms did not meet the criteria for the dispatch of a low acuity ambulance. After another 75 minutes of vomiting, Miss Alwai's family called triple zero again, and on describing that she also had abnormal breathing, a code one dispatch of an ambulance was made. Paramedics arrived at the house and assessed Miss Alwai, noting that her chest was clear. Her Glasgow Coma Scale score was 15 out of 15, indicating a fully awake patient, and her vital signs were within normal range. She vomited once during their attendance. The paramedics told Miss Alwai that they thought she had a gastric bug and they could transport her to hospital, but added that they had been at the hospital earlier and had seen ambulances ramped up so it was likely that she would experience quite a delay in being seen. Miss Alwai decided to stay at home and her family kept her company until she went to bed later that night. She was found deceased the next morning. A forensic autopsy and comprehensive ancillary testing did not identify her cause of death. At inquest, Miss Alwai's family expressed their concerns that if Miss Alwai had been taken to hospital, she would still be alive, and the reason she had declined any offers of transport was due to the paramedics' description of the delay she would experience. After reviewing all the evidence, the coroner determined that the assessment of Miss Alwai by the paramedics was in accordance with their clinical practice guidelines. As her cause of death was unascertained, it was not possible to establish a causal link between her symptoms and her death, and even if transported to hospital, she may have been discharged home soon after. As to the paramedics advising Miss Alwai that she would have a significant weight in the emergency department, the coroner explained that while it might have been the main reason Miss Alwai decided not to attend the hospital, it was merely stating a likely fact and could not have been seen as a contributing factor in her subsequent death. Miss Alwai's family maintained that had she been transported to hospital, at the very least she would have passed in a hospital setting with people who could have tried to save her life, not alone in her room. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr Simon Judkins. Expert commentary, a system under pressure, from Dr Simon Judkins, Director of Emergency Medicine at Chuka Health immediate past president of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. It is with a level of sadness that I put pen to paper to provide commentary regarding the cases presented in this episode of the clinical communique. For many years now, emergency medicine bodies across many countries, including the Australian College for Emergency Medicine and the International Federation for Emergency Medicine, have been highlighting the data showing that overcrowded emergency departments, 
full of admitted patients where ambulances are forced to ramp and patients wait for hours to be seen and days for admission leads to increased patient deaths. The data is irrefutable. The Australasian College for Emergency Medicine has been strongly advocating for action. Most recently, we saw an announcement from health ministers across the country that when the ministers met with Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt in Melbourne last month, Victorian Health Minister Martin Foley said the group had a lightbulb moment. They realised the crises in their own states were mirrored across the country. Now, one could argue that the light bulb had been flashing like a strobe light with an appropriately loud siren and should have been very difficult to ignore for so long. However, it is encouraging to see that we finally have recognition from health ministers that people are dying because of system failings, system failings which have resulted in the worst emergency department overcrowding and ambulance ramping in 20 years. Notably, since the 2016 and 2017 deaths of the patients featured in this episode, access block and overcrowding have, in fact, worsened. The clinical summaries and comments by the coroners tell us how overcrowding and the increasing demand and supply mismatch in our hospitals and emergency departments directly impacts the ability of patients to receive the care they need with catastrophic outcomes. Most of us who work in emergency departments will have a tragic story to tell. The cases described here will feel very similar to many but how the issues of prolonged wait times, inability to access timely care, and delays to appropriate levels of care impact patient outcomes are clearly outlined in the cases presented. And it is well recognised in Australian and international literature that the all-cause mortality for patients trying to access care increases when they are in a system that is working over capacity, where staff are stretched and resources are inadequate. One understands the human tragedy of this preventable situation. More recently, we have seen the very public cases of Christina Lackman, Aishwarya Aswath and Edmund Labram, which continue to remind us that many more patients and their loved ones across the country are being tragically impacted. The consequences move beyond the obvious effects on patients and their families. For the staff involved, the ambulance crews whose names are linked to these deaths, the medical and nursing staff who do the best that they can under very difficult circumstances, the clerical staff seeing patients and families in overcrowded waiting areas, the moral injury, stress and burnout are adversely affecting the mental health and career sustainability. Many are choosing to move on, to move out of a career they love, from a team that they have dedicated years to, for the sake of their own mental and physical well-being. So, what can we do in response to these cases? What lessons can be learned? Firstly, I would share these cases with your colleagues. We must realise that the events we are seeing in our emergency departments are not because of any individual failings. As highlighted in these cases, there are systemic issues that impact patient care. Patients leave before they are assessed, they wait too long, some don't even get as far as the waiting room due to concerns about an overwhelmed system. But as you may have seen in your own hospital, the first reaction of an immature system 
is to look for an individual or a group to blame instead of addressing systemic issues. This is the wrong response. A blame culture is damaging, destructive, and very difficult to reverse, as we can already see from the fallout of the Aishwarya Aswath case. Failings of the system in which we work are not the failings of individual workers. Access block and overcrowding are systemic issues, impacted by shortfalls in resources, inappropriate funding, widespread system dysfunction, and a lack of recognition of the problem and its consequences from management at all levels, from ministers through to hospital executives. A colleague once said to me that this is a choice made by the rest of the system to cohort maximum risk in one place. While many parts of the healthcare system have the ability to say no, we in emergency departments have been the perennial safety net for our communities. We should not have to take on that role. We are not failing our patients, the whole system is. We are advocating for them, attempting to fix what is a very fractured system with many gaps to fall through. Secondly, get involved in advocating for better. I know that this is hard. The line between advocating for change and tipping into anger, frustration and burnout is a fine line. I know, I've been there. But to quote Michael Mann, Doomism can lead to disengagement. Our patients need us. Our health system needs us more than it knows. So ensure that you keep supporting your colleagues and your team. There may be some things you can do in your emergency department. Ask your patients what they need. For example, my experience listening to many of the people who present to emergency departments for mental health care is that it is a very difficult, stressful decision to come to an emergency department but they need us when they need us. So even on your most stressful day, acknowledge their needs, acknowledge the pain which has brought them to a place where they do not want to be and support them. It will make a difference. Advocate for a safe space, advocate for staff. Use these cases to support your push for local solutions. It's easier said than done, I accept that, but some positives may come out of this. The greatest learning for me, reading through these cases, is that we need to also ensure we care for ourselves and each other. The Royal Australian College of Surgeons, in partnership with the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine, the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists, and the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, are soon to release a wellbeing charter for clinicians. It highlights that we all have a shared responsibility to maintain our well-being and that of our colleagues. There are responsibilities from individuals to hospitals to colleges. One of the biggest threats to our well-being, our capacity to keep doing our job and maintain a sense of wellness, is the unexpected or preventable death of a patient. These cases remind us that this is happening far too often. In your emergency department, you can discuss this episode of the Clinical Communique, discuss how these scenarios would impact you and your team, and how, if and when an event like this occurs, your team is prepared to wrap around and support each other. Sadly, the structures, or lack thereof, in our acute care sectors have gaping holes. We need to recognise this so that, as a system, we can respond to and close these holes. 
This will see an improvement in patient morbidity and mortality. And it will safeguard those clinicians on the front line so that they are able to work in an environment which allows them to do what they are trained to do to the best of their abilities. We must learn from these patients' stories and focus on system improvements that ensure access to care is timely, safe and effective for all who need it, when they need it. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website, www.thecommunicase.com, which also include a list of resources and any references that the experts recommended. You will also find on our website and in the print version of our June 2021 Clinical Communique, a list of mental health support websites and phone numbers if you or anyone you know needs help. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.